several months ago when we first began our study of James. Just three weeks in, we read this passage in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Even if you weren't there with us, and even if you haven't studied this passage before, as a believer, those principles make sense to you. You know that wisdom is good. It's something that we need. And because we need it, we should ask God for it. So important is it that we must ask with faith, such that we trust that God is the giver of this good gift, that God is the source of this good gift. We understand the value of wisdom, the importance of wisdom. But there is a problem when it comes to wisdom. And this problem comes down to one simple fact, and it is this. There isn't just one kind of wisdom. When we talk about wisdom as believers in the church, we know what we're referring to. Essentially, we're referring to the scriptures and the practice of them, putting into practice the knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of God which we have. Whether that be great, whether that be small, whether you are a veteran believer or whether you're a new believer, you understand that you want wisdom so that you know how to obey God. You can take what you believe, the gospel, you can take what the Bible teaches and apply it. That is wisdom. But there's another kind of wisdom, and it's that other kind of wisdom that we must be aware of. Because practicing this other kind of wisdom is not just different than godly wisdom. It is the complete opposite. And so this morning, as we begin a, as we begin a two-week look at the two kinds of wisdom, as we finish off chapter 3 in James, We start by looking at the first of the two kinds of wisdom that James talks about. This is the wrong kind of wisdom. Turn with me to James chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 13 through 16, and then we'll finish off the chapter next week. But this morning, verses 13 through 16 in James chapter 3, he writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. This morning I want to give you Three, unexpected problems with Christian wisdom. Three, unexpected problems with Christian wisdom. In other words, because we think of wisdom as good, we think of it as godly, we wouldn't expect there to be any problems with it, but as we have seen from this passage and we'll unpack this morning, there are several problems with it. Three unexpected problems with Christian wisdom the first of which is the demonstration of wisdom. The demonstration of wisdom. I'm going to read again for you verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. 
Now, the issue of wisdom and being wise is a topic that, as we just saw in chapter 1, have, we have already seen in James. It's one of the first topics he mentions in the letter, telling believers to ask God for wisdom. Now, this assumes that the wisdom we are to desire and to have and to ask God for is godly wisdom, the good kind of wisdom. And as I've said, there's more than one kind of wisdom, and not all wisdoms are the same. In verse 13 of chapter 3, he begins by asking his readers a question. Who among you is wise and understanding? In other words, he poses a question to them as if he was standing in front of them, as if he was seated in their midst. He says, which of you, how many of you, which of you Christians think you are wise and understanding? The word wise refers, of course, to the possession of wisdom. Wisdom being a general term here used by ancient Greeks to speak of knowledge, theory, or philosophy in general. It was used by the ancient Jews to refer to the application of knowledge to their personal lives, and that's how we use it as believers for the most part in the church today. He also says, who is understanding? Understanding is similar. It would be more specific. It would refer to a specific expertise or professional knowledge or skill. So if you could put this in modern terms, perhaps you could say it is a specific skill set at your job or your major in college, a specified body of knowledge that is not common. Not everyone knows how to work that machinery or teach children or code that program. It may not even be accessible to all. So it's a specific skill set, a specific understanding. Regardless, he's using both of these, generally speaking, to refer to any and all wisdom and understanding that would pertain to godly living. That's very important. So from here on out, when we talk about godly wisdom, the good kind of wisdom, the wisdom that he will extol, the type of wisdom he tells us to practice here in verse 13, the type of wisdom he will explain later that we'll see next week, this is wisdom that pertains to godly wisdom living. This is not just street smarts, worldly wisdom, those types of things. It is the application of the scriptures. What James is doing with this specific question in the first part of verse 13 and the following statement in the end of verse 13 is asking this, which of you Christians thinks he knows and understands godliness and how to honor the Lord? Well, then prove it. He says, and I quote, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So he asks this rhetorical question, and if if the rhetorical answer is, yes, I have that, I think I have wisdom, I think I have godly understanding, he says, then prove it by your deeds. We would say something like, put your money where your mouth is. Let's see it. This isn't just a challenge or a mild suggestion. The phrase, let him show, is a command. And what is commanded is that true Christian wisdom and biblical understanding be fleshed out quite simply in what we call obedience. This is really similar to what we saw in chapter 2 regarding true faith being evidenced or proven by works. Now here... 
James is calling the believer to demonstrate what he knows about God and godly living through, quote, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. The way he is to do that is by his good behavior. Let's start there. Behavior is simply that. It's behavior. It's one's conduct. It's one's manner of life, how you live, how you go about your day in public and in private. And he adds this description, good, good behavior. And we understand that when we talk about good according to Scripture, it's not good according to cultural standards. It's not good according to what our parents see or what our spouses see. It is good in the eyes of God. And so, good behavior is moral excellence. It is moral beauty. It is submission to the Word of God. Put together, we could say it simply means righteous living. We call it godliness. Good behavior is godliness, Christ-likeness. There's nothing fancy, nothing special about this. It's a term and a, a characteristic that we pursue all the time. Now, when this kind of life is practiced, what is shown is works or deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In other words, good or holy behavior is how wisdom is demonstrated. Now, I know that the grammar in the English can be a little confusing. It might help to know that the word by here that he starts off with means out of. So if I could rephrase it, he says, out of his good behavior, the Christian shows his deeds performed in the gentleness of wisdom. Out of his good behavior, the Christian shows his deeds performed in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, it's interesting that James is here calling for a visible showing of one's works to indicate or prove that true wisdom and understanding exist. And by the way, it's the same word show that he used in 2.18 when he said, I will show you my faith by my works. Show, prove. And when it comes to the proof of wisdom, what is shown are what he calls deeds. Deeds are simply the activities and pursuits that we take part in. But these specific deeds are, as he says here, a demonstration of the gentleness of wisdom. It's interesting. He doesn't just say wisdom. He says the gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness means tenderness, graciousness. It is often translated in English Bibles as meekness. This is not being soft or weak, but actually is quite the opposite. True gentleness, true humility, is strength under control. On a practical level, you understand this when we understand the principles of self-control and patience. We feel like in our culture, we don't feel like, the culture sees this. Someone steps up to a man, then he needs to prove his strength by fighting back saying equal or worse condescending words, offenses, or using his fists. And we say, oh yeah, that's a man, that's strong. But let me ask you this, which is harder in those situations or similar situations that you have been in? To just let your mouth flow, to let your fist fly, or to control your tongue and your heart and your body and walk away? You know very well that the latter is much much more difficult. And this is the idea here. It is strength 
under control. It is gentleness, not weakness. Who is the most gentle person who ever lived? Who is the most humble person who ever lived? Surely you would not say Jesus Christ was weak, not manly. He was the epitome of godliness and manliness. And this kind of self-control comes from the believer submitting to the sovereignty of the Lord and engaging in the fruit of the Spirit. It is, in fact, a mark of the strong Christian, the mature Christian, because the strong Christian can only be characterized as such if he has humility. You don't see a proud, arrogant Christian and say, oh, there's a mature Christian. It is the one who is humble. And true humility is a product of wisdom. In fact, humility is essential to godly wisdom. And you could say that the point James is making about wisdom and works here is twofold. First, true wisdom produces godly deeds, godly obedience. And secondly, true wisdom is humble. True wisdom includes humility. And this starts off with the fundamental understanding of your place as a sinner before a holy God who has chosen to have a relationship with you. If you struggle with humility in this life in regard to other people, maybe your coworkers, your boss, whoever it may be, understand that as a believer, it starts fundamentally with your understanding of yourself as a sinner before a holy God. You say, well, how does that help with how my boss treats me? How does it help with my coworkers who try to one-up me and brag and take credit for my work? Well, it's the same as anything. You start with the foundation. You start with the overarching understanding of things, and that molds, melds into godliness. And that is going to impact everything. Big picture always impacts the smaller picture. And a proper grasp of this amazing truth can logically result in nothing other than a humble heart before God and before others. Because when you are humble before others, is not God there? Are you not still a Christian? Is he not sovereign over everything in your life? And it's because of this that we can go further and describe true biblical gentleness as the opposite of arrogance and self-centeredness. Even further, the gentleness of true wisdom is free of bitterness, animosity, and a desire for vengeance. And we see him already setting up for chapter 4 where he addresses the quarrels and conflicts within the church some of which, he says, even lead to murder. Now, the rhetorical question that he asks here in verse 13 is a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who among us thinks that we are wise and understanding? Ask yourself, do I think I'm wise? Do I think I'm understanding? And our gut response, as believers, is most likely to recognize that we don't know enough. We have a hesitancy to say yes. Because there's always more that you can know. But the reality is, if you are a believer, you know. You have the Word of God. 
You may not know it as well as you like to. You may not know it as well as the next guy, but you know it. Even as basic as knowing the few tenets of the gospel. That is wisdom. You have it. You have biblical wisdom and understanding. And so we all must heed James's follow-up. Since you have wisdom, since you know the gospel, and any verse that you have ever studied or read or heard, practice it. Practice it. And how you practice it, or don't, will reveal your inner character and how much you truly bow down before your God in your heart. If there is no gentleness or humility, then no matter how that lack fleshes out in your day-to-day, that pride is ultimately against God. And it shows not an ignorance of the Scriptures, but a failure to submit to them. And this is why I call this a problem, the demonstration of wisdom. Why is verse 13 a problem of Christian wisdom? Because it even needs to be said. Because it even needs to be told to Christians that knowing the Bible is not enough, you actually have to do something about it. Because there are those back then and there are those today who claim to know the Word and claim to desire to honor the God of the Word, but stop at merely understanding and not putting into practice. And so even the demonstration of wisdom, because of the lack of it, is a problem of wisdom. And you've heard me say this before, I believe this is a bigger problem in churches like ours. We go deep. We have sound doctrine. We have good theology. We preach word by word, making sure everyone knows every single jot and tittle of the Scriptures. And so that can easily fill our heads. And the more you know, the harder it is to apply all of it. But we must. We must. Not just because we teach it, but because it's in the Bible. And if you claim to be a believer and know God's Word, the failure to submit to the Word says something very significant about you. If you claim to know God's Word and do not submit to it, that says something very significant about you. What is that? James tells us in the next verse and our next point, which is the deception of wisdom. The deception of wisdom. Verse 14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. As we know, that morally speaking and before the Lord, nobody is neutral. There's good, according to God, and there's bad, according to God. As we live out our day-to-day and we see people committing various crimes or sins, we understand that there may be varying degrees of either side, but we know that it's one or the other nevertheless. You are either for God or against Him. You are either a saint or a sinner. And this is not only true in terms of one's inner morality or character. It's true in what will come out in his thinking, in his words, and in his conduct. So, if good is defined in verse 13 as good behavior, 
good deeds, and humility, then bad involves the things we see in verse 14. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. These are, in fact, all rooted in pride and the opposite of true wisdom, which results in humility. Now, let's take a look at each of these. Although three are listed, there are actually two that are defining the third, which is arrogance. Before we do that, we thought we had fixed this problem. Um, Apparently, we haven't. So I'm going to switch to the handheld mic, which... All right, we're still good on the live stream and everything with this. My love for you is evidenced by this right here. When I am asked to officiate a wedding or funeral or be a guest speaker, one of my first questions is, do you have a mic stand? Do you have, I can't hold the mic. So just let this be, I'm kind of joking, but... It's kind of true, too. Well, let's go back to verse 14. First, we have that phrase, bitter jealousy. Now, the Greek word for jealousy is a neutral word that simply means strong desire. It can have a positive tone, such as in a strong desire to pursue a positive character trait, such as holiness or love. It's even used positively of God and his jealousy for our worship our commitment, our love. In other words, his desire that we honor and serve him alone rather than idols or false gods. Now, of course, that word can also have a negative tone. And when it does, it is either translated jealousy or envy in our English Bibles. Now, unlike the holy jealousy of God, we know that human jealousy is wrong. It is sinful. Rather than desiring something good, With good intentions, the desire is to selfishly take something from another person or even having a strong resentment toward another. You get this. Jealousy, envy. Oftentimes, jealousy is seen in a passion to promote one's opinion in contradiction or exclusion to anyone else's opinion. And the danger and sinfulness of this attitude is evidenced by the fact that it is listed in several lists of gross sins in the New Testament, including the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 that counter the fruit of the Spirit. Jealousy is bad. Paul even uses this word, the Greek word, to describe misguided zeal or passion for the Lord twice using it to refer to his former life in Judaism, including in the context of his zeal for persecuting the church. And here he describes this kind of jealousy he's referring to as bitter, meaning sharp, pointed. It's especially nasty. And what this tells us is that the kind of jealousy he's referring to is especially heinous. It's harsh, it's sharp, It has no concern for the welfare of others. 
it is what we call a contentious spirit. The second attribute that he gives us of the individual without godly wisdom is selfish ambition. Now, selfish ambition has to do with a party spirit, division, rivalry. Selfish ambition, two words in the English, one word in the Greek, refers to strife, contentiousness, extreme selfishness. And all of these make sense in our general understanding of selfish or self-serving ambition. This word became used in ancient times for those who sought political office and other positions of power through any means necessary. And we talk about politicians in America being corrupt and doing shady things to get to their position. You've studied the Roman Empire. You know that it was much worse back then, including murder. Aristotle described this word as a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Now, you translate that into the modern church, and you have leaders as well as lay people who push for personal goals and form a group around them that agrees with them. That group, under the leadership of the individual with selfish ambition, then withdraws from the rest of the body, whether physically or just emotionally in their minds, and this is what leads to many church splits. And this is actually probably what James is referring to because he's not talking about Roman senators. He's talking about the church. And there is clearly a connection there to many people desiring to become teachers, seemingly doing so for God's glory and the good of his people, but really just appeasing the ambition of one person who pushes for his own agenda, although they would never put it that way. This is not to say that people in the church shouldn't have opinions, ideas, but you understand what I'm saying here, what this is referring to. Some of you have left churches that split because of this kind of mentality. And you can see how this selfish ambition is even connected to jealousy. We see this far too often in society. One person who, in order to appease his own pride, creates a group of followers that causes problems for the rest all the while hiding his personal agenda with words and phrases, whether in business meetings or political, uh, political office or campaigns. They use words and phrases like love, the common good, and what's best for you. And ultimately, this word selfish ambition became used of seeking personal fulfillment and self-gratification at any cost. And that would be the most appropriate and accurate definition for us today. Seeking personal fulfillment and self-gratification at any cost. If the cost is being in line with the scriptures, then yes, I will follow the scriptures. But if the scriptures or the church or the preaching tell me to do something that I don't want to do or prohibit something that I want to pursue, that at any cost, if it means finding another church, if it means knowingly disobeying, if it means hurting my family, getting a divorce, whatever it may be, I want it. It makes me feel good. I want personal fulfillment. Society says I deserve it. Society says I should get it. And there you have selfish ambition sugarcoated as love, 
as self-esteem, as whatever other words that we throw around in our culture today. Now, both bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are forms of pride. And when James goes on to say, do not be arrogant, again, he's not giving us a third attribute to go along with the first two. He is saying that arrogance is what you have when you are bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious. Look at the grammar. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, comma, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. We are all familiar with the concept of boasting, the sinfulness and the pride in boasting. The word arrogant in the Greek is actually an intensified form of the verb that means boast, to boast. In fact, the ESV says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. In other words, stop aggressively asserting or defending or affirming yourself at the expense of others. Because when you do that, you lie against the truth, he says. And as an aside, right off the bat, then we know lying against the truth, though I haven't unpacked it for you yet, we understand that when someone is pursuing and pushing accuracy to Scripture, that is not selfish ambition, even if they are going against the flow of their entire church. Selfish ambition is against the truth of God's word. And so it's something that is outside of Scripture. It is pursuing sin. It is pursuing something that uh, is against the Scriptures or doing so outside of the Scriptures. But let's look at that phrase, lie against the truth. What does that mean? It means when someone who claims to be a believer but has an arrogance displayed through bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, that person is lying. How so? Because when someone says they are a Christian, they are saying they believe the gospel, which means they possess godly wisdom. That godly wisdom is proven by good behavior and humility. The arrogant person clearly does not have humility and thus contradicts his claim of having true wisdom and possessing the gospel. To put it another way, whenever a believer is bitterly jealous, selfishly ambitious, and otherwise arrogant, he is contradicting the gospel truth that he professes. By his actions, by his heart, by his words, he is lying against what he is claiming to be. And this is something we need to keep in mind whenever we struggle with pride. We are still believers, but we struggle with these things. And what we need to be reminded of in our jealousy in our selfish ambition, in our arrogance, in our pride, in our not considering others as more important than ourselves, we, in that moment, even if it's one argument, even if it's only directed at one person, one object that you want, one area of your life, 
that person, that area, that argument, that conversation, you are lying against the very proclamation, I am a Christian. However, if a professing believer is characterized, so not once in a while, not when he's tired, not when he's angry, he is characterized consistently by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. He is lying against the truth because that person simply cannot be a Christian. That person's not a Christian if they are characterized by arrogance. And the claim that he is a Christian is a lie. Now, all of this makes sense to us because those who do not truly practice godly wisdom, which demands selfless humility before the Lord, have no other choice but to serve themselves. By definition, we serve God. People who are selfish and don't want to serve God and God's people and the world, as God calls us to, can only serve themselves. They say, no, no, I must, you know, I serve my work. Well, why? Because of the paycheck that goes into your account for the credibility and the reputation that belongs to you as an individual. You may feel like you're serving your boss or society or politician, but you're serving yourself. And these people believe that their standards, their experiences, their ideas, their opinions are the measure of everything. That is actually one of my favorite practical definitions of pride. When we think that our experience should be the norm for everyone else. It could be something small like, I love spaghetti. How can you not like spaghetti? Because I like spaghetti, so everyone must like spaghetti because I'm the standard. That's a small thing. That may just be being naive and really liking spaghetti. (laughs) But you understand how we do this all the time. How do you not know this? I know this. You should know this. And all of a sudden, we are the standard instead of God. Or even in a practical level, instead of the owner's manual or the understanding of different places and education and what people may have experienced. And these people who set up themselves and everything about themselves as the standard, the measure of everything, they see anyone who disagrees as at best foolish and at worst an enemy. And notice, although we spent a good deal of time and thought on the tongue, This is not necessarily about speech or the tongue. James says that you are lying against the truth if you have these things in your heart. They will eventually come out in words in one form or another, but even if they don't but exist in your heart, you are lying against the truth. That's why this is the deception of wisdom. People think this is a godly person. He may even think he is a godly person, but his character proves otherwise. His pride proves otherwise. He is deceiving others and quite possibly himself by his verbal claims, but the truth is evident in his lack of humility. Again, 
This is to say that if you struggle with pride, this is not to say, rather, that if you struggle with pride, that you're automatically not a believer. But if this is all you have, if you are selfishly ambitious in every area of your life, if you're arrogant and boastful and proud in every aspect of your life, you would do well to examine your own heart to see if you're truly in the faith. And the deception actually goes deeper than merely claiming to have biblical wisdom but not truly having it. See, James continues to tell us that this person doesn't lack wisdom. He actually has wisdom. It's just not a wisdom that comes from God. Look at our final point, the distortion of wisdom in verses 15 and 16. We've seen the demonstration of wisdom, the deception of wisdom, and now the distortion of wisdom. Verses 15 and 16. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That is heavy stuff. Now James does not call this wisdom, or James does call this wisdom rather, But it is a wisdom that does not come down from above. In other words, it does not come down from God. It does not come down from heaven, where God is. So where does it come from? There are three descriptions James uses that will give us the answer to this. First, it is earthly. This is obviously the opposite of above, which refers to heaven or God. It is the opposite of the wisdom that is marked by humility and righteous behavior. This is wisdom that is marked by pride and ungodly, selfish behavior. Now, although earthly can refer to that which is neutral, soil, a tree, here James is using it to refer to that which is sinful and inferior, a rejection of that which is heavenly. Whereas the wisdom from above is connected to the one who is infinite and has no bounds, a wisdom that speaks of eternity and the next life, this earthly wisdom is limited to this finite world and its finite occupants. It is limited to that which man can discover on his own, thoughts and ideas that can be formulated by human ingenuity, actions that man in his own strength and ability can accomplish. This is very different than the wisdom from God, which is infinite and involves thoughts and ideas that need to be revealed to man by God because we could never come up with them with our finite minds. And it involves behaviors such as unconditional love and joy in trials that are impossible without the help of God and are, frankly, flat-out inconsistent with human nature and thus human wisdom. In addition to earthly, James says this kind of wisdom is natural. That's our second description. This refers to the flesh. It pertains to the natural life of man and animal. In other words, it is unspiritual. Brought into the church, this wisdom is clearly devoid of the Holy Spirit. And then, thirdly, as he continues to move in order of ascending strength, James says this wisdom is demonic. Look at 
It is of the devil. There can be no confusion here. This isn't just that the professing believer is struggling or has some areas to grow in. His wisdom, as proven by his pride, is not a lesser form of godly wisdom. It is demonic. But you'll notice that all three of these descriptions are the opposite of godly wisdom, which is heavenly, not earthly, spiritual, not natural, and divine, not demonic. But why? How so? Verse 16 explains, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Pride is destructive. Pride is like a parasitic disease. A parasite slowly eats away at peace, fellowship, harmony, and contentment. And like a parasite, the more it destroys, the bigger it grows. It is not an exaggeration to say that jealousy and selfish ambition lead to disorder and every evil thing. Disorder strikes against the very nature of God and the godly because God is a God of order and peace. Disorder at its most basic means instability. It was a, used, it was a word used to describe rebellion and anarchy as well as disarray and confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And we'll see next week that the wisdom from God is all about peace. Practically speaking, when there are those in the church who are habitually jealous and are characterized by selfish ambition, then the result will be a church that is unsettled. It is restless. There's division because the desire for the good of the body as a whole has been chopped up into pieces by various groups following selfish people who just want what's best for themselves and find followers that think the same. It is essentially antisocial behavior within the community or society of the local church, which is supposed to all be about the same thing, which is God and what God desires. When the very people of God who are to be a uniform body, also known as fellowship, are at odds with one another because pride and selfishness have crept in, then you show this kind of disorder can lead to all sorts of sin. James says every evil thing. Think about it. If our very essence is to be like Christ, to exemplify servanthood, sacrifice, and humility, and we start thinking only of what we want, then we have shattered the very description of who we are supposed to be. And if you have shattered the very foundation, then everything else is fair game. That little towel or piece of fabric that you put under the door so that the little breeze doesn't come in and make your house a little colder is completely useless if the last storm completely obliterated your door. So when you have the door of humility and self-sacrifice destroyed, then in comes every evil thing. 
Every kind of evil thing is what that means. In 1 John chapter 2.16, we are given the three besetting sins of the world. The three main descriptive sins of the world that all other sins can fall under. I'm going to read that for you. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh, selfishly pursuing what your sinful flesh wants. The lust of the eyes, seeing, then selfishly wanting. Boastful pride of life is the arrogance that James is talking about in our passage this morning. All three are forms of selfishness and pride. And later, in chapter 4, James will write that jealousy has gotten so bad in that church that he sees murder within the realm of possibility. And to give you a little preview there before we get to that passage, he is not speaking metaphorically. He is not using murder as a euphemism for anger. He is saying that there was in the early church the very real possibility and perhaps already occurrences of people so zealous for what they want that they have murdered other Christians in the church. Bottom line, absolutely nothing good comes out of earthly, human, godless wisdom. But what does come out of it is every evil thing. And when we understand the true wisdom of God, the true wisdom that we possess, that we desire more of, we see how this is a complete distortion of wisdom. In the same way that sin is a distortion of humanity. Three unexpected problems with Christian wisdom. The demonstration, deception, and distortion of wisdom. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that there exists a godly wisdom, a wisdom that is not just found inherently in you, but is shared and given to your people through your word and through practical obedience by the guidance of your spirit. Lord, as those who struggle with sin and will continue to do so until we see you face to face, though we are not characterized by ungodly wisdom, we often live and practice our lives in a way that resembles it. And in those areas, may we repent. May those areas, may we be clear. First and foremost, Lord, show me and all of us here 
in this church, whether part of it or visiting, the reality of who we are. And that godly wisdom is to be pursued not only when we are trying to act like Christians, but even in the most wicked of places, be that somewhere we're visiting or we go for 40 hours a week. I pray, Father, that you would give us a a love and a passion to flesh out this godly wisdom for your glory and help us to see where we are exhibiting deeds of the flesh that are like the world and their wisdom. May we be vocal when the wisdom of the world is evident in others. May we stand brightly as salt and light in a world that has no choice in their depravity but to embrace and pursue and relish in and love earthly demonic wisdom. May we be bold to show them the beauty and wonders of godly wisdom and the opportunity and privilege they have to come to you that they might as well embrace it and live it and have it within them. Use us to this end, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song.